0: All right, well, let's um, begin 2016 with a moment of vulnerability and honesty. Can we do that as a community? Brief show of hands, how many people in your location are terrible with faces and names? <laughs> my hand is definitely in the air. I can't see whose hands are in the air at your location, but for all of those who are joining me in putting my hand up and confessing that I am terrible with faces and names... Uh, You can take solace in looking around a room and seeing that other people struggle with you and with me in this. I am just the worst at cataloging faces and names, which is a terrible affliction in a community like ours. Because in the course of a, a week or a year... I see a lot of faces and I hear a lot of names. I'm introduced to a lot of people. I get involved in a lot of conversations. I hear a lot of snippets of people's stories and and I just don't have the storage capacity to keep that information accessible, which means I find myself in situations far too frequently where I'm in a conversation with somebody and I have absolutely no idea who they are. I, uh, it wasn't that long ago, I was walking through the Penn Center, and um, this absolute total stranger, at least as far as I was concerned, this person was a total stranger to me. Just I could see them making a beeline for me across the mall, and they walked right up to me, looked me in the eye, and picked up a conversation that seemed like we had started at some other point in time. They looked me right in the eye, and they said, guess what? Bill got into that program finally. I was, like, doing my very best to not have a blank stare on my face and trying to think, okay, I have no idea who you are. I have no idea who Bill is. I have no idea what program he's trying to get into, and I have no idea how long it's been. So I, this story, but I don't have the courage to say any of that, right? Because I'm, like, um, I'm embarrassed that I, I don't recognize. So now I'm like Sherlock Holmes, right? I'm asking these kind of vague, probing questions that kind of sound like I know what was going on here and trying to get more information to see if I can finally put the pieces together, right? Like, it's tremendous. I, I hate being in those situations, uh, especially when I'm the one who starts the conversation. That's even worse. Uh, I was walking down the hallway one Sunday morning at Glenridge, and I saw a group of like four or five guys. They were standing together. And the first guy reached out his hand as I walked by. He wants to shake my hand. He reached out his hand. He's like, hey, I'm Dave. And I'm like, perfect, we're strangers, you just introduce yourself. So I'm like, hey, I'm Mike, and I'm shaking all their hands, right? Hey, I'm Mike, hey, I'm Mike, hey, I'm Mike. I get to the last guy, hey, I'm Mike. If he looks at me and rolls his eyes and he says, yeah, I know. And for the fourth time, I'm Derek. I'm like, oh, I suck, I suck at this, right? <laughs> The worst is when you, you think like you're just absolutely sure that you know somebody. Like you're just convinced you know who this is and you're absolutely just dead wrong. I, I still have this vivid memory of a time when I was like six or younger, like really small. And I was walking through the church lobby and I saw my cousin standing with his back to me. And he was standing there with a bunch of adults and I was just giggling to myself. I walked over. And I like literally grabbed my Bible with two hands. And I smashed it on his head as hard as I could. Kid turned around. I would never seen that kid before in my life. Not, (laughs) this is an absolute stranger to me, right? This is horrendous. And multiply that instance all the way through my adult life. Just so humiliating when you're supposed to know who somebody is. And it turns out that you don't have the foggiest clue. Especially... Um, When that person that you're supposed to know is Jesus. We're starting a six-week series this morning of looking through the book of Matthew again. Back to our three-year study so far in the book of Matthew. Picking it up at the end of Matthew chapter 13 with this series called, Who is Jesus? Because that idea of the identity of Jesus, of coming to recognize who Jesus is, is like the thread that runs all the way through the passages that we're going to look at in this series. It starts with two stories we're going to look at this morning of people who think they know Jesus and are just way dead wrong. And it ends with Jesus turning to his disciples uh, and saying, Who do you say that I am? And his disciples, for the first time out of anybody, getting it absolutely right. And so let's turn, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 53. A Bible app will do. If you don't have a Bible, um, I think we have some to borrow. I don't, maybe we don't anymore. Just look on the screen. But it says in Matthew 13, 53, it says this. When Jesus had finished these parables, uh, moving on, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. And coming to his hometown, He began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Uh, This wisdom and miraculous powers, Matthew has spent the bulk of the material that we've studied in our three years of getting through the first half of Matthew. The bulk of the material that we've studied has been first of all about Jesus' wisdom, and second of all about his miraculous powers. Matthew spent three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, describing the wisdom of Jesus, of, of what it looks like in Jesus' vision to, to live rightly with God and to live rightly with yourself and to live rightly with others and in the world, um, which is, of course, the way of, of love. And then three more chapters in Matthew 8, 9, and 10 about the power of Jesus, his ability to bring healing and hope and wholeness into the pain and despair and brokenness of our world. This is what Matthew has been focused on, what we've been studying for the last couple of years. And then in in Matthew 11 and 12, what we looked at in 2015, um, he begins to describe people's reactions to Jesus' wisdom and his power. And the reaction turns out to be far more opposition than anyone would have anticipated, which leads to the question of, you know, if, if Jesus is who Matthew says he is, and if you think about the kind of wisdom and power that Jesus is bringing to people's lives, why aren't more people <clears throat> buying into and putting their faith in Jesus? And, and that's what Matthew 13 was all about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Where Jesus told this series of parables to help his disciples understand why it is that some people reject him and reject his teaching and reject the life that he's calling us into, reject the kingdom of God to encourage them to hang on tight. Well, Matthew 13.53 says when he finished teaching those parables, he left that place and he went back to his hometown, to the town of Nazareth where he grew up. He was there on a Sabbath. And on that Sabbath He went with his family to synagogue. To the synagogue where no doubt he had grown up. Where he had run around as a little kid among the seats after the service. The synagogue where people had taught him Torah in Torah classes. The synagogue where his family still attended. And he goes to synagogue with his family and Jesus is given the opportunity to teach From the Hebrew scriptures. It would have been an exciting. Kind of an electric moment. Exciting for Jesus. To to come to the synagogue where you grew up. And to teach for the very first time. There would have been an incredible amount of anticipation among the people who had gathered there because this was a local kid. This was somebody they knew, somebody who had left town and gone and made something of themselves um, from the most unlikely place, this town in Nazareth. Um, they, they had gone, Jesus had gone and made good on his life. He would become somewhat of a local celebrity and here he was back in their synagogue. He was going to teach for the very first time. I can only imagine how exciting it would be. I... I Actually, don't have to imagine at some level, I've been a part of this church for 36 years. I grew up in this church. I preached my first sermon in this church 10 minutes on Christmas Day, 24 years ago. And I remember how nerve-wracking it was, but how exciting it was to be a, a part of our community, teaching the Bible in the community that had taught me the Bible all those years. And this, this is what Jesus is doing. And it says that, that they were amazed at his teaching. That they marveled at it. They wondered at it. Although as you read on, what you begin to realize is that the reaction, the amazement wasn't entirely positive. Positive says in verse 55, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and, and, and Judah? Aren't all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all this stuff? And it says they took offense at him. When it says they were amazed, actually the most common translation in English Bibles is the word astonished, which isn't quite as positive as amazed. The Greek word means they were stunned to the point of being overwhelmed. They were shocked. Uh, The Latin word, uh, when it gets translated to Latin, the Latin word literally means thunderstruck. They were just bewildered. They just couldn't absorb what it was that they were experiencing. And by the time Jesus was done, uh, they were scandalized. It said uh, the actual Greek word. They were scandalized. They took offense at Jesus. They, they took offense that someone from their town, someone who was their peers, someone who was one of them, would be so arrogant and so self important as to stand up and try and tell them what's what about anything, about faith, about God, about life, about anything. It's offended that Jesus would have the nerve to presume to tell them what's what. Because they knew Jesus, right? They knew Jesus. They'd known Jesus his whole life. In fact, that's the whole point of, of all these questions. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy at the front who's telling us what, what's what, isn't that the carpenter's son? Right, Jesus, we know who you are. You're not a rabbi. You're not a Bible teacher. You have no theological training. You're, you're a hick construction worker who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in a rough town. You've got no right. You've got no right um, talking to us the way that you're talking to us. They say, "Isn't aren't his brothers? You know, James and Joseph and Simon and, and Judah." Listen, my cousin Levi went to school with his brothers. We know who this guy is. His his sisters used to babysit my neighbors. I know who this guy is. The the one question I love. They say, "Isn't isn't his mother's name Mary?" That's interesting. That when they are talking about his parents, they mention Mary, but not Joseph. Some scholars say, "Well, that's just." Proof that by this point in Jesus' life, his dad has already passed away, and that may be true. It's probably true, um, but I don't think that's why they, instead of saying, "Isn't this? Isn't his father's name Joseph?" which would be more in the ancient world how you talk about somebody's lineage according to their father. The reason they say, "Isn't this? Isn't his mother's name Mary?" is kind of, you know, his mother is Mary. We're not exactly sure who his Dad is, it's, I think, literally a jab at his legitimacy as a part of their community. It's, it's taking a cheap shot at his legitimacy as a human being. Right, but this is, this is the reception that he gets in his own hometown. He comes back to teach them uh, the Jewish scriptures at Sabbath. And they say, no, 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 listen, We're not, we don't need to listen to you because we know who you are. You're just a hick construction worker from backwater nowhere. You don't know anything. You've been believing you're too hyped for too long. And you don't have the right to tell us what's what. Because of who you are. Because of who we know you to be. They rejected Jesus because of their familiarity with him. It says in verse the end of verse 57, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They refused to put their faith in Jesus because of what they assumed that they knew about him. And as a result, they missed out on experiencing the wisdom and the power of having Jesus in your life. It's the first story. second story starts in Matthew 14, verse 1, the very next verse. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, I need to give you some background. Um, Herod, or or the title Tetrarch is actually, it's a government title. It's a rank in the Roman Empire. Caesar was the highest rank of ruler. And there was only one of them. And then Caesar would designate kings over certain parts of the empire. People who ruled over an entire province or an entire territory in the, in the Roman Empire. And then under the kings, if you weren't quite a king, you could be called a tetrarch. Which literally just refers to somebody who rules over a part of the territory. And this Herod... Herod Antipas was his name. He was a tetrarch in Israel. He ruled over a part of Israel during the time of Jesus. I have a a map of this to show you um, what part of Israel that Herod uh, Antipas ruled. Um, Herod Antipas ruled the green sections, both of them on the map. Um, The the northern section is called Galilee. And Herod Antipas would rule from Galilee, from, from this capital of Tiberias. And this is where Jesus lived his public life in the northern part of, of Antipas' territory called Galilee. The, the southeastern section, this bottom portion, the other green section, is called Perea. And that was the other part of Antipas' territory. He would rule from that little fort. I don't know if you can see the fort there on the bottom called Fort Machairus. And that's where he would stay when he was in Perea. And Perea actually was the area of Israel where John the Baptist lived his Public life. So Herod Antipas was the ruler in Israel over the two sections of the nation where the two most important people in the first century lived their public life. He was very intimately acquainted with John the Baptist and he became in time acquainted with Jesus. It says that he had heard the reports about Jesus and, and the conclusion that Herod came to was, <laughs> I know exactly who this is. This is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, we need to give some backstory on that. It says in verse 3, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. See, here is the thing. Herod Antipas found himself attracted to his brother's wife, whose name was Herodias. And so he entices Herodias to leave her husband and to come over and to marry him while her husband is still alive. Which in Jewish law is a violation of two commandments. Number one, it would have been considered incest to marry uh, the wife of your living brother, Um, But it was also uh, a violation of their divorce law, that you were not allowed to, or remarriage law, I guess, you were not allowed to marry a woman whose first husband was still alive. And so John had been publicly denouncing Herod for making these horrendously unethical Jewish, you know, according to Jewish law, these horrendously unethical marriage decisions. And it made Herod and his wife Herodias furious. But more than that, it made them afraid. Because um, if John and his public denouncing of their marriage could rile up the people which a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus says was happening, that John's preaching about this matter was actually stirring up a lot of dissension among the people with respect to their leader. If he could, if he could start somewhat of a revolt against Herod Antipas, well, that was going to be the end of Herod Antipas' career. See, Caesar puts people in charge of territory to bring political stability. If what they're doing is bringing political instability, they're not going to be in charge of the territory. So Herod has to figure out what to do with John because if John is allowed to keep preaching, that's going to be bad news for Herod. And so he has him arrested and bound in chains and thrown into the prison in the Fort Machairus in Perea. And he leaves them there in the dungeon to rot until he can figure out what to do with them. See, he, he would love to kill John, but he's afraid that if he kills John, that'll further incite the people and create more political instability, and it'll actually backfire on him. So he leaves them in prison trying to figure out what he's going to do with John, until one day, Matthew goes on to say, Herod is throwing himself a birthday party with all the local dignitaries, kind of a state dinner, in honor of himself. And in the midst of the party and the drinking, whatever, Herod invites his stepdaughter, Salome, to come in and to dance for the guests. You know how we make our kids perform when people come over. And she dances and performs for the guests and the guests love it. And in this kind of unguarded moment of drunken thoughtlessness... Herod looks at Salome and he says, Oh, great job, honey. Uh, I'll give you anything you want, up to half my kingdom. What is it that you want? To, you know, how, how can I pay you back for entertaining us? And Salome goes to her mother, Herodias, and says, What should I ask for? And her mom says, You should ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And she does. And Herod is now torn. He doesn't want to kill John because he's afraid of the people but he also doesn't want to he's kind of taken an oath in front of his guests and if he goes back on his word he loses his honor and sacrifices his credibility. And so he sends a bunch of guards down into the basement and they they do John in, Isis style. And they bring his head up to the dining room and set it on a platter in the middle of the table. So when Herod hears rumors about Jesus, this man from Galilee who has miraculous powers that work through him, Herod, out of his fear, out of his guilt and his shame over what it is that he's done, Herod says, I know exactly who this is. This is John the Baptist come back to life. God has sent John back to get me because of what I did to John where those you know, that Jesus knew in Nazareth had assumed that they knew who he was because of their sense of familiarity. They were, they were too familiar with Jesus. Herod assumes that he knows who Jesus is because of his fear, because of the guilt and the shame that, he, that reside in him about the decisions that he's made in his life. And now he's afraid that God has sent Jesus to come and get him. And you know what, truth be told? I'm going to say that I see both in my life and in our community and in the church in general. I see the same kind of patterns at work among people who think that they know Jesus. That we think that we know Jesus, for example, like the people from Nazareth, because of our familiarity with him but it's led us to conclusions about Jesus that are just dead wrong because they're rooted in our assumptions not in reality see that was That's what happened in Nazareth, right? They had spent a lifetime living next door to Jesus. And so they assumed that they knew who he was and what he was all about. And those assumptions led them to disregard reality, to not listen to what he was saying, to not see what he was doing. They stopped paying attention to Jesus because they assumed that they already knew who he was. And that those assumptions about Jesus had led them to all the wrong conclusions, And had taken their faith down a disastrous path. And I see the same kind of pattern going on in the church. Where people like me, people like some of us, have spent a lifetime in the church becoming familiar with Jesus. Hearing the stories from a thousand sermons, a thousand Sunday school classes, a thousand podcasts, a thousand worship songs, a thousand Life group conversations. And we've come to the place where we just sort of assume that we know who Jesus is. And we know what he's all about. And, and, and so we stop because we assume that we know. We just kind of stop really paying close attention to what it is the Bible actually says about who Jesus is. And we start to draw all sorts of crazy conclusions about what Jesus is all about because we stopped paying attention. I mean, if you look at the church at large in North America, how else do you end up with a prosperity gospel Jesus? A Jesus whose life mission is to make sure that everybody is happy and healthy and wealthy all the time. You, you don't get that Jesus from here. How is it that, that we end up in North America with a gun lobby Jesus? Jesus. I don't know if you heard about this president of <clears throat> excuse me, a Christian university in the States who, who told all of his students to go take a gun class, to buy a gun, and to carry it on campus in a concealed way so that they could shoot the Muslims before the Muslims start shooting them. I don't know where you find that Jesus, but he's not in here. For that matter, where do you find an anti Muslim Jesus? When you find stories in here about Jesus talking to the woman, you know, the Samaritan woman at the well, the wrong race, wrong gender, wrong religion, Jesus loves her. Where do you find an anti immigration Jesus? Jesus is the one who says, when you welcome the stranger, you do it for me. Where do you find a Jesus for Westboro Baptist Church? This this Jesus doesn't hate anybody. Where do you find a Jesus that endorses not forgiving? Where do you, you know, where do you find a Jesus that endorses greed? It's just, it's preposterous. It's because we're not actually reading what Jesus is about. We're just assuming that we know what he would endorse, what he would do. And in some ways we get just way off track. I had a friend named Rob who was an atheist. And he used to come and he doesn't come anymore. I remember asking him once why he, it was that he never, ever decided to put his faith in Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he looked at me and he said, do you want to know why? He said, you don't believe in Jesus, so why should I? And I said, what do you mean I don't believe in Jesus? And he said, well, your whole church. He said, you don't believe in Jesus. He said, go read your Gospels. If, if you believed that the Jesus you worship is the Jesus described in the Gospels, if you believed that what it meant to be a follower of Jesus was to do the things he commanded in the Gospels, even if you did a fraction of them, your life would look radically different than it does right now. So until you start believing in Jesus, I don't figure there's any reason for me to believe in him. And that's stung. I think it's true. And not just true for people in the church, I think it's true for people outside of the church who make like Herod, who have heard of the fame of Jesus, people who have no first-hand contact with Jesus but who assume that they know what Jesus is all about because they read a Richard Dawkins book or because they watched an A&E documentary or because they listened to a CBC podcast or because they inherited some kind of cultural Christianity from grandma. They assume they know what Jesus is all about. And, and because they've assumed, because they think they're familiar with who Jesus is, they make all sorts of decisions that just lead them down the wrong paths it's just we don't purposely find out who Jesus really is because we assume we already know based on our familiarity with him or I think like Herod there are some of us who are assuming that we know what Jesus is like not rooted in familiarity but in fear in the guilt and shame that lives in our lives we we know the kinds of bad decisions that we've made Right, self-destructive decisions, decisions that have been destructive to relationship, decisions that have been destructive to the people that we love. Um, and then we make bad decisions to try and figure out how to cope with our bad decisions, and we live with this incredible amount of, of guilt and shame, you know, rooted in the, the depths of our being, and we and we make this assumption that that The God who reveals himself in Jesus wouldn't want to have anything to do with people like us because of the choices that we've made. Or, I guess like Herod, if if Jesus wants anything to do with us, what Jesus wants is to inflict pain on us for the pain that we've inflicted on other people. And out of our... Out of the fear that's generated by the guilt and the shame that lives inside of us. We, we draw conclusions about what we think that Jesus is like. And it takes our faith down disastrous paths. And it's not just true, by the way, of people who made a tons of bad decisions. I think it's equally true of people like the folks in Nazareth. Who would have been proud of their goodness and proud of their religiosity. Who would have assumed that, who would have stopped listening to Jesus because they assumed, based on their goodness and religiosity, that Jesus didn't have anything to teach them. In fact, that Jesus should be ashamed of himself for thinking that he had something to teach them about what a life of faith looked like, about what a life of of living in relationship with God looked like, of what the world is supposed to look like, you know, as God always dreamed that it could be. It's people who make assumptions based on their own sense of their own goodness and religiosity. I go to church and I read the Bible and I, you know, pray pretty regularly and whatever. God must be pleased with me. And so we stop paying attention to what the Bible actually says about who Jesus is and what the the Bible actually says about what a life of following him looks like. And our faith ends up wandering off in all sorts of disastrous directions. Because instead of finding out who Jesus really is. Instead of going back to the scriptures and finding out the life that Jesus has actually called us to live. We just assume based on our familiarity or out of our fear. That we already know. And we just, our faith just rolls on. The invitation for this series, and I want to say the invitation for this year, is to not be okay with that anymore. Let's let 2016 be a year where we stop assuming that we know what Jesus is all about. And let it be a year where we intentionally and purposefully go back to discover Jesus again for the first time. Or maybe just discover him on purpose for ourselves for the first time. Let's let these next six weeks launch us into a year where we ourselves are prepared to answer what really is the single most important question, which is the one that Jesus asks at the end of this whole section that we're going to look at, the one that Jesus is addressing to you this morning.